When I was 13 years old, a footballer called Alan Shearer was sold to Newcastle United for a world record fee of £15 million. And to be frank, my brain basically melted. I was so astounded, I gave a presentation about it in my English class at school. £15 million For one footballer? But in 2017, a new world record fee was set. Neymar is a Brazilian wing wizard with magical feet and a hilarious flair for the melodramatic. When fouled, he doesn't so much fall over as spiral across the turf like someone stuffed him in a sleeping bag and rolled him down a mountain. But on the few occasions when he's upright, and they are indeed very few, he is scintillatingly brilliant. So Paris Saint-Germain raided their piggy bank and handed Barcelona £198 million to own this mercurial genius. Yes, that's right. £198 million. Extraordinarily, that was the cheapest part of the transfer. There were also agent fees and bonuses and legal fees to cover. PSG had to acquire his image rights so they could use him in their global branding. Oh, and they had to pay his wages, a cool £775,000 per week, or £41 million per year. With bonuses, it's more like £56 million. All in all, that transfer cost PSG nearly half a billion quid. Neymar, meanwhile, pocketed both his wages, which were rather nice, and another £14 million from personal sponsorship deals with Nike, Beats by Dre, Gillette, McDonald's and more. Basically, he was earning my entire annual salary in the time it takes him to pick up one of his socks. So why is he worth so much? Part of the appeal is Neymar's mammoth global celebrity. He's intensely revered in his native Brazil and lives the glamorous celebrity lifestyle. Fast cars, gorgeous girlfriends, luxury casual clothing, diamond earrings and a variety of iconic haircuts, including a dazzlingly ill-conceived hyper-mullet. He's the glamorous face of globalised football. PSG didn't just acquire an elite footballer. Neymar is his own micro-economy. Only two decades have passed since Alan Shearer melted my brain, but now football has entered a new gold-encrusted paradigm of financial muscularity. The sport's becoming more popular in America and Asia, but the enormous escalation in transfer fees and wages isn't just driven by new global audiences, but by long-standing fans paying more for the privilege of being fans. They'll fork out 60 quid for a replica shirt, and the same again every time they enter the stadium. More crucially, they'll find another 50 quid every month for the sports packages that deliver beautiful, slow-mo, pausable HD TV. Neymar's celebrity helps drive the economics of the game. But the game's economics have also propelled his celebrity. We pay so much to watch because he's famous. And he's famous because we pay so much to watch. Modern sport is utterly removed from its amateurish historical roots. But if we go back far enough, there might just be a couple of case studies that dwarf Neymar's vast earnings. In the mid-2nd century, a Roman charioteer called Gaius Apuleius Diocles competed in 4,357 chariot races and won 34% of them. And this was a phenomenal achievement in a 24-year career because most charioteers were lucky to survive even a couple of years without being mangled beneath the wheels or pulverised by galloping hooves or crushed against a wall. Life as a Roman soldier was a walk in the park compared to chariot racing. Diocles hoovered up a mind-boggling 
35,863,120 sesterces in prize money during his career. If he'd saved it all up in a piggy bank, then splurged it all at once, he could have been able to fund the entire Roman Empire's military for about three months. And there's no way to compare ancient economics to our own. And modern warfare is incomparably expensive. You've got fighter jets and missiles that cost millions and all that. So it can't be done. But if you want to play a fun game, Peter Strzok has pointed out that covering the US military's wage bill for three months now would set you back about $15 billion. So if we're happy to speculate like this, then Diocles' ancient earnings make Neymar's fortune look like a child's pocket money. Much like the Brazilian footballer, who's regularly eclipsed by Lionel Messi's genius, Diocles wasn't necessarily the best charioteer. Pompeius Musculosus, who raced for the rival blue team, won more victories. But Diocles seemingly wasn't driven by glory alone. He prioritised races with the biggest prize money. In such a terrifyingly dangerous sport, who could blame him for choosing to gamble only on the most lucrative events? Of course, I am cheating here a bit because I've previously argued celebrity didn't exist in ancient Rome. And I'm not backtracking on that just for Diocles either. But he is still an intriguing case study in the economics of fame. Here was an athlete whose value was spectacular because he was a public spectacle. Romans paid to watch him compete and their entry tickets funded his winnings. The more he won, the more he earned and the more people wanted to watch him. His success fueled a narrative of obsessive fandom. It made his rivals hate him all the more and so made their victories all the sweeter. But at the heart of it all was cold, hard cash. It's money I want to focus on in this chapter because the history of celebrity produces surprises when it comes to cash flow. I began with football, my favourite sport, but its enormous financial power is actually a very recent development. In 1979, Britain's highest-paid footballer, Peter Shilton, was earning only 10 times the national average wage. Indeed, sport wasn't really a reliable way to become a well-paid celebrity until maybe four decades ago, and there were far fewer sporting celebs in past centuries than there were from the worlds of music and theatre, writing, or politics, or even war. That said, if we riffle through the annals of history, we do glimpse a few in the early 1800s. My favourite is the man who first inspired this book, the American bare-knuckle boxer Bill Richmond, who was liberated from slavery during the US Revolutionary War. He was brought to Britain by the progressive aristocrat Hugh Percy, Duke of Northumberland, who paid for him to be educated and apprenticed as a craftsman, after which Richmond should have lived a boring life of married mundanity in Yorkshire. Instead, he took up prize fighting at the age of 40 when most fighters were considering retirement. Richmond was probably Britain's first black sporting celebrity, and he was widely admired, though his ironic, paradoxical nicknames of the Black Terror and the Lily White reveal how race dominated his reputation. But if black people at the time were often portrayed as savage simpletons or as physical outliers like Sarah Bartman, Richmond challenged such stereotypes with his cultured wit and gentlemanly manners. He was widely hailed as a top bloke. He befriended aristocrats and royals. He hung out with Byron and Hazlitt. He sparred for the visiting Tsar of Russia. He was the bodyguard at the coronation of George IV. 
and was celebrated by sports writers as a smart fighter and a technically innovative trainer. But it didn't make him rich. Richmond was comfortable for a while. In classic fashion, he bought a London pub that became the informal home of the boxing community. So all the bare-knuckle fighters orbited around him like bruised moons. But he couldn't afford to keep it for long. And when I came to research his life for an intended biography, I found his later years dominated by cash flow problems, gambling debts and failed businesses. Richmond died in 1829, and his good name earned him a brief obituary in the Times. But his impoverished wife, Mary, was slung straight into the workhouse. Bill Richmond's celebrity had been built on his speed and his dexterity. He'd literally danced rings around much bigger men. And he'd fought into his early 60s, which is a remarkable thing. But bodies always fail. When his bones began to creak, there wasn't enough in the kitty to fall back on. Footnote. Richmond's reputation for innovative footwork, he bobbed and weaved like no other fighter, has led TJ Desh Obi to ask if he'd grown up practicing an Angolan form of battle dance, similar to Brazilian capoeira, which made him a master of swift evasion. Jump forward a few decades, and the situation was changing a little. Boxing success also foisted celebrity status upon American prize fighter John L. Sullivan, emphatically nicknamed the Boston Strong Boy, which makes him sound like a plucky toddler wearing his dad's shorts. He rose to become the heavyweight champion of the world in both gloved and bare-knuckle boxing in the 1880s and 90s, and was among the earliest sporting celebrities in America, not least because his fight with Jake Kilrain was perhaps the first to receive nationwide coverage. However, his journalistic allure wasn't just built on pugilistic achievements or notions of boyish charm. Sullivan had a volcanic temper, an epic drinking problem, womanizing tendencies, and his weight fluctuated wildly. A police officer arrested him for punching a horse. I mean, who does that? Sullivan was a violent, chaotic man who guaranteed a story, regardless of whether a bout was scheduled or not. He fitted the bill for what we now call troubled sports icon. But he worked his fame to the max, touring the nation across eight months and making over 200 personal appearances on his knockout tour, in which he challenged local audiences to face him in the ring. Any man still standing after four rounds would claim a cash prize, and some were stupid enough to try. Seeing the end of his fighting career coming, he used his sporting celebrity to launch other careers as sports journalist, public speaker, and even actor, making him the anti-Stallone, a boxer famed for his acting rather than the other way around. He died of the effects of his alcoholism aged 59, despite having kicked the habit. But he'd clung to the limelight enough to pay his bills. He wasn't rich, but he wasn't poor like Bill Richmond. Meanwhile, between his 1865 debut and his death in 1915, Britain's premier athlete was the cricketing titan, W.G. Grace, owner of sport's most iconic beard. In his 20s, he'd been a swift-footed sprinter with the body of a CrossFit-obsessed hipster, but he'd swelled in middle age to resemble a bat-swinging Brian Blassid. Luckily, speed wasn't the essence of his game. Thwacking balls was his metier, and he was magnificent at it, meaning he carried on being a cricketing master long after he stopped being able to touch his own toes. But there was a strange shadow looming over his career. English sport was class-obsessed, 
and Grace was a middle-class gentleman amateur who played for expenses only, as opposed to the working-class professionals who drew a wage from their team. For most of his career, Grace worked as a suburban doctor and wasn't really meant to be a superstar cricketer, and he certainly wasn't meant to earn so much from it. But his iconic physique and his ball-smashing brilliance offered up countless opportunities for enrichment, particularly through lucrative international tours. So he stretched the definition of amateur until it audibly twanged. He was more of a shamateur. A lot of money probably passed under the table, making it hard for biographers to track Grace's income. We know his celebrity had a quantifiable value, however. Ticket prices doubled when he played, and there are stories that occasionally he would refuse to be judged out by the match official because the people came to see me bat, not you umpire. Perhaps the most obvious sources of income for the historian to seize upon were public benefits arranged in his honour. In 1895, the Daily Telegraph collected £5,000 for Grace in an exercise of national gratitude, which also conveniently boosted the paper's circulation. Indeed, several other celebs piggybacked on his fame by scribbling letters to the editor announcing their donations in gratuitously performative style, looking to be seen as generous. This system of public benefits might seem odd, Normally, it's the sort of thing we do for fallen heroes in times of hardship. The boxing community, for example, held a collection for Bill Richmond's wife when she was widowed. But in prior centuries, it wasn't just offered as a farewell pension for a declining favourite, but instead exploited audience fervour at the height of a star's appeal. And we find it most commonly in the world of theatre and opera. So let's ditch sport and skip off to the nearest auditorium for some highbrow culture. <laughs> 